Church, it's good to be together today. It's good to once again turn to the Word of God and uh, hear what God's Word has to say for us here in this place. As we do that, would you join with me in just asking for God's favor on this time and ask that God would work in us as we look to His Word. So let's pray together. Father God, we praise you. Indeed, your mercy is so great, O Lord. We thank you for the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. Our sins are indeed many, but his mercy is more. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, and we praise you for that. Thank you, O God. Father, as we gather as a church this morning, we do pray for the ongoing ministry of our church. Father, would we be a church that is growing in grace, growing in godliness, growing in unity and humility, I pray, God. Father, we pray for our ladies this week as as they begin Bible studies and begin meeting together to see clearly from your word. God, would you be with those who are leading those studies? Would you give them all insight and wisdom as they lead? Father, would you allow many to partake in this opportunity to grow And would you allow true and rich fellowship to take place in that time, we pray. Father, we pray on behalf of those who are hurting, as as Matt has already prayed, God, we ask for your comfort and presence with our brother Walt, with the passing of Cheryl. God, we thank you for the hope that Cheryl had and now has fulfilled as she is with the Lord. Father, would you encourage and build up our brother as he grieves as one who has hope. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. As we go to your word this morning, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your word clearly. I pray that we would be transformed even now as we look at your word in this service. God, work in us, I pray. God, I need you. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly pray that you would use my feeble words right now for this body, that you would help build them up through my simple explaining of your word, oh God. We know and we believe that your word and your spirit create life, so we look to it and rely on you to create life in us. Work, we pray, in this time, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, what does humility look like? What do you think of when you think of humility? We, we ended our, our sermon and our time together last week talking about this idea of humility. And I wonder if you've thought about it at all. I wonder if you've given any more thought to, to what humility might look like. For some people in, in our culture today, Humility is actually a weakness. They might not say as such, but, but they will say that you should take pride in your position, as it's normally a good thing to have a healthy level of self-esteem, and you should be proud of who you are. For, for others in our culture, humility may be good, but is often misunderstood or conflated with with tolerance. So if you have confidence and clear convictions about something, then you are being arrogant. 
to be humble, you have to be willing to accept any different viewpoint as equally right. Is that true humility? What about here? What about among us? What about in the church culture? I expect that most of us here would, not, would be happy to be thought of as humble. We would never think that we are arrogant. One professor I once had uh, was known to facetiously hang on his wall a humility award. Uh, it was a beautiful plaque which declared him to be the most humble person in the entire world. And this is the best part, he had it professionally made for himself. <laughs> we laugh because we know that the most humble people seem to never be able to admit that they're actually humble. True humility is an elusive trait. It's a bit like trying to catch fireflies with my boys at night. As soon as you see it and run after it, it seems to just disappear in your hands. False humility, though, is so much easier. It's, it's so much easier to find and so much easier to fake, isn't it? But it's also so ugly. Think of how many people have been turned off to a church like this by coming in and seeing hypocritical people that are just putting on a show of being, of being humble. So with, with so many distortions of what humility looks like in our world and so many obstacles to cultivating it ourselves, how are Christians to have a, a, a genuine humility, a, an unhypocritical humility, not a false humility, not a, a humility conflated with tolerance, but but a true humility. True humility is a sense of lowliness. It's, as we talked about last week, it's the opposite of a sense of entitlement. True humility is a posture that makes much of others and much more of God and makes little room for our own selfish ambition. What does this true humility look like? Well, today's passage teaches us about real humility, and it also teaches us so much more. It is the foundation for our humility. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're perhaps visiting because a friend brought you, or perhaps you're here because your parents want you to be here, so you're sitting in, I'm just guessing that the authentic humility, the unhypocritical humility that I just spent three minutes talking about is something that appeals to you too. And as you listen to me talk today, let me just ask, what basis do you have for true humility? I'd suggest that what we find in our passage today is going to teach us a far better foundation for humility than anything this world has to offer. So if you've brought your Bibles, and I hope you have, open to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11 today. And you'll remember from last week that Paul wants the church that is writing this letter to, to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In verse 27, we saw this. And to live in, a way, in that way, they will need to be united. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 2. And to be united, we need humility. 
We saw this in verses 3 and 4. So humility, then, is, is a bit like a key which unlocks a doorway to unity and to so much more. Well, we need to know what this key looks like. And so today, Paul shows us. To show us what humility looks like, he explains Jesus Christ. So follow along as I read. I'll just read the whole passage just to begin with here. As I read verses 5 through 11, follow along in your Bible. We read this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." It's often been said that this is truly one of the mountain peaks of the New Testament. Here we see Jesus Christ explained in all of his glory. Now, admittedly, this is also a heavy passage. It's beautiful, uh, but it teaches some heavy truths. Even just last night, as I was reading through my sermon, you know, as you do before you preach the next day, I just realized this is a bit of a heavier sermon than I might normally prefer but I'm going to teach what the passage teaches. And so the passage does get heavy at some points, but let me encourage you now, listen in, have your Bible open, pay attention as I just walk through this text. And if you do, you'll find that there is, there's gold to be mined at the bottom of this mountain, if you'll work for it. My prayer is that today our hearts would be filled with overflowing worship as we see Jesus Christ as the humbled and exalted King of all. And may this worship then lead us to humility. Practically, as we move through the text today, I'm going to offer four points, each reflecting on Christ. If you're taking notes, I'm not going to give them all to you right now, but rather I'm going to give you each one as we move along. And maybe a very kind person will even put them on the screen behind me as I talk. So chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here Paul is linking back to what he just said. Last week in verse 2, you'll remember Paul called us to be of one same mind together and to have one mind together. This is verse 2. You remember last week I talked about this idea of, of my rowing team and how we were all united together and working together with one common goal. And so here we get to verse 5 and we realize that he's going to explain to us what is the one mind that Christians are to have. If you noticed, I didn't tell you this last week. 
I just said that we are to have one, one mind together, that we are to be in full accord together. But I didn't say what it is, what that one mind is. Here in verse 5, we realize that it is the mind of Christ Jesus. Among us, between us, together we share in the mind of Christ Jesus. This is interesting. Paul wants us to be united, but not just united to each other, but united in union with Christ. Working together towards humility isn't just enough. We're working towards unity in someone. Listen to how A.W. Tozer reflects on this. He writes this. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for a closer fellowship. I think Tozer is right. If we desire unity through humility, we ought not to look fundamentally to ourselves for a closer unity. We need to look to the tuning fork, the source of our humility, that is Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, this mind is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, I think the ESV gets this right here. Because Paul isn't merely saying, have this attitude which Jesus Christ also had. As if he's merely pointing to Jesus as an example to follow. He is an example to follow. But that's not all. No, Paul is saying that we are found in Christ Jesus, and that is we are united to him in one body, just like one body is united to its head. And so Christ's humility becomes our humility. And as we are united to him in faith, he works his humility in us. Galatians 2.20 says, Therefore, it's not you that live anymore. It's Christ that lives in you. So to understand this humility that Christ has and works in us believers, we need to think carefully about Christ, which leads us to verses 6 through 11. The rest of the sermon is spent thinking and worshiping well about this Jesus Christ so that his humility can become ours. Now, this is interesting. In order to teach about Jesus here, as we transition to verses 6 through 11, Paul quotes what clearly seems to be an early church hymn. It's a song. All the commentaries agree that there's, there's a poetry and there's a rhythm here in today's passage that show it was maybe a creed of some sort, but probably actually a hymn that the church would use to sing together to cement truth in the life of the church. Now, as a pastor, I can't help but comment on this. You see, here we see how incredibly important our singing as a church is. 
See, Paul is, is probably writing at this point around 62 AD. And we know that Jesus died around 30 AD. So in a short time period, only 32 years, we're already finding established hymns which are teaching about the nature and deity of Christ and are being used as a way to, to celebrate this doctrine. As one person put it, congregational singing has always been this type of catechism for the church together. And so for us as a church, we should love to sing together. We should love to sing good biblical truths together. We shouldn't view our, our time as, of singing as merely an, an introduction or a warm-up to the rest of the service. Because when we sing good biblical truths about who God is, we're doing what these verses are doing. We are rightly thinking about the nature of God and celebrating that together. Well, what does this hymn say about Christ? My first point, point number one, we see here the height of Christ's position. The height of Christ's position. Look at the first phrase of verse six. We read, who though he was in the form of God. What is the height of Christ's position? It's that Jesus was forever and eternally pre-existent with the Father. Jesus has been forever God. As the eternal Son of God, he had what we see here is the form of God. Form here refers to what one commentator calls the outward appearance of an inner nature. So before taking any human body on, the Son of God gloriously displayed the very form of who the invisible God is. It's who Jesus is. He is the imprint of God's nature, Hebrews 1.3. Or as, as Matt read earlier, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus was in this form of divine glory forever and ever with the Father. Just think on that for a minute. Jesus has just always been God. We, we see this in Scripture. Uh, John 17, verse 5, says that Jesus prays and he references the glory that he had with the Father before the world even began. Or John 17, 24, he talks about the glory and love that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. So here in verse 6, Paul starts by looking back and acknowledging that Jesus has always been God. What, a, what an important foundation for us to build on tonight. Unlike many, many Muslim friends that I have, or, or many Jewish friends that are here in Boynton Beach, or perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses that you might meet, no, Christians believe that Jesus has always eternally been God. If you lose the eternal deity of Jesus Christ, you lose the whole foundation for our faith. And in this passage, before we see Christ as humbled, we must first see and remember that he was eternally exalted as God. He was 
in the form of God, before mankind, before the world, before angels or demons, before any other created thing, forever and ever and into eternity past, beyond what our finite minds can even grasp, Christ was always fully God, in full possession of what it means to be deity. But then we see not only this, but we see number two, the height of Christ. We see not only the height of Christ's position, but we see number two, the depth of Christ's descent. The depth of his descent. So what I mean here is how low did Christ come down? Look at verses six and seven with me. We read, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, be born in the likeness of men. So in the first point, we saw Christ's preexistence. Now we see Christ's incarnation. Notice the text first explains what Christ didn't do, and then it says what he did do. So verse 6, it says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we, we need to read carefully here, because this isn't saying that he gave up equality with God. Some people have tried to say that over the years, but that's just simply not what the text is saying. No, even while on earth, Jesus himself said countless times that he was still equal with God. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No, verse 6 says that he didn't count or consider equality of, with God which he did have, a thing to be grasped. Literally, this word grasped gives this picture of, of clutching at something. Even in our day, I think we can think of leaders who understand the authority that they do have to be something they need to clutch at rather than to keep and use. Jesus could have stayed in the form of God's splendor and glory without taking on a human body. But as Dennis Johnson writes, Jesus didn't view his glorious equality as a pretext for grasping, but a platform for giving. Jesus used his equality rather than grasping it. He did what we talked about last week in verse 4. Do you remember? He looked not only to his own personal interests. That's what he didn't do. What did he do? Look at verse 7. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is the incarnation. This is describing what happened when the eternal Son of God became a man. So he emptied himself. The text doesn't say he emptied himself of something, like emptying himself of his divinity or of his power or of his deity as God. No, just as we just read about in Colossians, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. No, he didn't empty himself of something. He emptied himself. That is, he poured himself out. How did he empty himself? What does it mean he, he poured himself out? Verse 7 tells us. Continue reading. It says, he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is profound. The eternal Son of God was born in the likeness of men. He put on human flesh. These verses are a bit like if you could imagine a great king. Imagine him in the the greatest palace that you can picture and sitting on the, the grandest throne over an entire massive kingdom. This king rules in splendor. And then imagine that this king doesn't give up his reign, but he does come out of his throne room. And he comes down from his palace and he goes out among his people. Imagine he not only goes out of his throne room and out of the palace, but he goes down to the poorest places in his kingdom. And he not only goes down to them, but he puts on their clothes. He dresses himself in their likeness, even though he is still the king. This is what Jesus is doing. He's being born in the likeness of man. When we think about the depth of Christ's descent, how far did Jesus come, we think about a king who put on our clothes and our flesh and our blood. And he did this, the verse says, by taking the form of a servant. Again here, we see this word form. But before, Jesus had the form of God. That is the outward appearance that reveals his inner nature as God. And here, Jesus takes on the form of a servant. The outward appearance of a servant that reveals that it is his true inner nature. Jesus shows us that the very nature of God is to serve. So, so think just about the Gospels. You know the Gospels well. You know the stories of Jesus. Think about Jesus with Jairus' daughter or of Jesus healing the paralytic or Jesus feeding the crowds. Jesus didn't just accidentally start washing people's feet because someone needed to. Or he didn't just accidentally start serving crowds by healing them and feeding them. No, he's serving Because it's who he actually is. God is love, and in love he came as a servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So remember that picture in your mind of of the king that I was just telling you about. He not only comes down and puts on clothes, but here he begins serving the citizens of his kingdom. We're going to see that he does this in a very unique way. This is the depth of Christ's descent for us. He was in eternal glory with the Father, and he humbled himself. He took on our flesh, and he became a servant. Friends, this is the type of humility, the type of lowliness that we need to grow in. This is the type of humility that that our church needs. This is the type of humility that that your home needs. If you want to grow in Christ-like humility, uh, let me actually commend to you this book 
by C.J. Mahaney. It's called Humility, True Greatness. It's excellent. It's served me well uh, over the years. Mahaney talks about the battle of humility versus pride. He talks about our Savior and the secret of true greatness. And then he gives seven chapters to talk about the practice of true humility. By the way, I have three extra copies of these books. After the service, I'm just going to go through these double doors and just be greeting people out in the hall. For the first three people that come to me and will actually read this book, it's yours for the taking, all right? Humility. So, how should your life reflect the servanthood of Christ? You should read the book. You should also listen to what I'm about to say. I guarantee you that anything you give up this week for someone else pales in comparison to what Christ has given up for you. When he was, when he was incarnated, in his incarnation, he gave up everything. Any status that you could potentially clutch onto in your life. Any reputation that you could potentially work to preserve or that would work to prevent you from serving others. Any position as the one being served rather than the one who should serve others. All of this just melts away when you view the glory of the Son of God coming and becoming man. So here's a question for you at, at your lunch table this afternoon. In what area of your life do you need to grow at being a humble servant? How does this fit into your life, even this week? What areas of your life do you need to be more of a servant? Friends, thinking on these verses should give us a desire to serve, but it should also bring us to worship. See, Christ has traveled such a great distance to be with us. Praise be to Christ. Listen, I, I'm just going to read this whole quote, actually. But listen to John Owen just praise Christ as what he does here is he just reflects on the distance that Christ has come in order to be among us. This is what he says. He says, who can measure the distance between that which is infinite and that which is finite. It cannot be done. So the infinite essential greatness of the nature of God with his infinite distance from the nature of all creatures means that God has to humble himself to take notice of things infinitely below him. God is so infinitely high and lofty, so inhabits eternity in his eternal being, that it is an act of mere grace in him to take notice of things infinitely below him. And so he says this, how glorious then is this willingness of the Son of God to humble himself to become our mediator. What heart can conceive, what tongue can express the glory of that mind of Christ, which brought him down from infinite glory to take our nature into union with his, so that he could mediate with God on our behalf. Friends, I hope today you stand in, in joyful amazement at what Christ has done for you in his incarnation. Well, we should move on. Let's move to point number three. 
the length of Christ's obedience. The length of Christ's obedience. That is, how far did Christ go to obey the Father? How far did his humility extend? Look at the text again. Think about verse 8. Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ not only took on our human form, what we've been talking about, but here he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient. Christ's obedience here is remarkable. It it reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane. There we see with Jesus pleading with the Father to remove this cup of suffering from him. And in the divine order of the Trinity, he then submits himself to the Father's will. Not what I will, but yours be done. Despite being equal with God, he obeyed and is obedient to the Father's will. So in John 6, 38, we read that he says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Friends, Christ obeyed his Father. And even in this, he is unique. He's different from us. He did what you and I cannot do. He never once did anything at all that was against the will of the Father. He perfectly obeyed. If you're here today and you're a Christian, this is so important to you. It should be so important to you. You see, you need Christ's obedience. The reason that when Christ, the reason for this is that when Christ obeyed on earth, he, his obedience became, becomes your obedience. The, pictures that, the picture that Scripture gives of this is of a robe. It, it's like putting on a righteous robe. Imagine getting into a robe and, and putting it on so that it, it covers you up. It, it hides you. It's cloaking around you. We, as Christians, are robed in Christ's obedience. So that when God looks at us, if we're in Christ, he doesn't see our works. He sees Christ's righteousness, his righteous obedience. We are covered in it. But notice also the length of this obedience. Verse 8 says that he became obedient to the point of death. There is no limit for how far Christ would go to obey the Father. Every part of his life was obedience, even the giving up of his life. Even in death, Christ put no condition on how he would die. And so he died a horrible death. The text says, death on a cross. Death on a cross was engineered by the Romans to be a death of extreme pain and suffering. Death on a cross was a a long and torturous death, ultimately by asphyxiation. Death on a cross was, was reported by Cicero to be a most cruel and disgusting punishment. Death on a cross was was shameful. It was disgraceful. It was public. It was degrading way to die. 
And death on a cross was the fitting physical death to reflect the spiritual death that he endured. That is, the shame and the torture and the pain and the suffering of bearing the wrath of God and the wrath of God's hot, white anger against our sin. Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross. Church family, in just a few minutes, will celebrate communion together. And this ordinance looks to the cross. It's meant to regularly point us as a church to stare at the end of verse 9 here, of what's happening in this text. That is, to consider the death of Christ on a cross for us. As we consider that we are forgiven fully and completely, but it came at a cost. Christ had to be obedient to the point of death on a cross, and he did it for us. Friends, this perfect, glorious, preexistent son of God, who was in eternity past, glorious with the Father, could not have been in a higher position in the universe, descended to take on what couldn't be a lower position in the universe, and couldn't have suffered more than he did. From the highest of heights to the lowest of lows, Christ humbled himself. So connect this back to to where we started this morning. This is the mind that we are to have, that we have as we are in Christ Jesus. Christ's humility is now yours if you are in Christ Jesus. Displaying humility tomorrow at your workplace with your frustrating coworker, or this afternoon with a spouse, or tomorrow evening with your children, or wherever you might be, displaying humility in your life is not your work of your humility. It begins with seeing Christ in faith, treasuring him for what he's done, and him working his humility in you. Worship this Christ today. Ask that he would give you the strength to have his humility. Well, we've seen the the height of Christ's nature or position, the depth of Christ's descent, the length of Christ's obedience. Finally, we see here in the text the glory of Christ's exaltation. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. We read, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't miss this opening, therefore, there at verse 9. Notice Paul is linking together Christ's obedience with his exaltation. You might ask, wasn't Christ already exalted? Well, yes, he was, but when he obeyed to the point of death on a cross, there's a particular type of glory that he received because of his obedience. Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor 
because of the suffering of death. You see, the Son of God was already glorious, but now Jesus, as the Son of God, the God-man who suffered, has a praise that he deserves because of his conquering death. He was raised up, the text says, highly exalted. That is, he was resurrected, ascended, and then seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ humbled himself, and God highly exalted him. Now, what is the name here that Paul talks about? Did you see that in the text when I read it? Verse 9, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It seems that, that Jesus receives a name in this exaltation. Verse 9, it's, it's a name that is above every name. And verse 10, it's associated with the name of Jesus, but I don't think it is the name Jesus. He, he already had that name on earth. It's associated with Jesus, so that when we see the name Jesus, we see this name that was bestowed on him. Well, what is it? Verse 11 tells us. It says that every tongue confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. And this is where it gets interesting, because this verse is actually a quote from Isaiah 45. This hymn reaches back to Isaiah and, and quotes where God, Yahweh, says that he is God and that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We realize that Christ, now in his exaltation, his resurrection and ascension, is publicly declared to be Yahweh. He has the name of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. So what will this mean for us? We who are, are citizens in this king's kingdom, as he came down and served and died and now goes back to sit on his great throne, what does this exaltation mean for us who are down here in the city? Well, it means that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. As a king, as king seated on the throne, Christ will be bowed to. As king seated on the throne, Christ will be acknowledged, confessed that he is Lord. Please notice that this is universal. Scripture says that Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. This includes those who are in heaven and those on earth and those who are under the earth. I don't think these are, this is meant to divide up into three categories here. I think Paul is trying to speak comprehensively, universally, saying that everyone, every being will declare that Christ is Lord. With all due respect today, if there's anyone here in this room that does not yet confess Christ as Lord, let me just tell you, this verse, according to God's word, says that one day you will. The idea is that Jesus Christ is truly king. He is king whether or not he is acknowledged by you right now or not. So one day, every knee will bow to his kingdom. 
Every person in this room, within the sound of my voice, will one day bow to worship King Jesus. You will one day bow to worship King, King Jesus. All on earth will bow. Every person that you meet at your job or at your school this week will one day bow before King Jesus. Every family member that you're related to will one day bow. Every businessman you meet, every neighbor in your community, every person that you pass at the grocery store, every single American, every, every single person in any nation across this globe, even every remote tribesman living in the farthest village in the world, every king, every president, every congressman, every millionaire, every person from across history and all time, everyone, everywhere, from all times, will bow before King Jesus. Whether child or adult, young or old, repentant or rebellious, whether in Christ or outside of Christ, friends, you will bow before King Jesus. If you are a Christian, you should worship Jesus today as a foretaste of your future adoration of your good and kind and gracious and humble King Jesus Christ. You will one day get to worship him forever in endless joy. But if you're not a Christian, will you consider bowing now? Or will you wait until he returns? Jesus died to bear our sin and bring us to God. So repent and turn even today. There is a too late to submit in joy to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can submit to him now as king and friend, or you can submit to him in the future as king and judge. I plead with you, talk to me or someone else today. Come to Christ and submit to him. We should conclude. So let me encourage you. Look to your exalted Christ today. Worship him. In Jesus Christ is true and perfect humility, which he used for your good. Humble yourself this week as you revel in Christ's humility. The path of Christ is first humiliation and then exaltation. That's the path that we see here. John Owen said it so well. In Christ, suffering went before glory, and so it must be with us. Will you humble yourself today at the name of King Jesus? Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his perfect example of humility. We thank you that he came, that he was, took on the, the form of man, that he took on our flesh, that he died in our place, a death on the cross. And we thank you that he then rose from the grave and ascended to heaven and is our king. Would you work 
his humility in us, your people, we pray. We praise the name of Jesus, our King, in his name.